Hello from both the nation's capital and the capital of Texas, and welcome to a special joint episode of the National Security Law Podcast and the Lawfare Podcast. It's Monday night, June 1st, 2020, and all hell's breaking loose. The president is threatening to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. He, this evening, appears to have ordered a tear gas attack on peaceful protesters near the White House in order to stage a photo op in front of a local church. And he has called out troops in Washington, D.C. and threatened to, though not quite, invoked the Insurrection Act. So we've got a lot to talk about. I'm Benjamin Wittes. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and that sound you hear is my face banging into my table over and over and over again. (laughs) As are all faces connecting with all tables around the country this evening. So, Steve, let's start start with what the president said this evening and uh, work backwards from there. What did he announce? What did he do and what did he not do? So I think it's actually really important to start with the fact that he actually did very little, um, that there was a whole lot of sound and fury, including this very aggressive clearing out of Lafayette Square, apparently so he could have a photo op in front of St. John's Church, and that he basically said that he is telling governors that they really have to get serious with all of this violence and disorder that is you know, going on in response to obviously um, the huge upheavals of the past week, this you know, completely unjustified killing in Minneapolis. And that if they don't, he says, right, if they don't, I will call out the military. So he didn't actually call out the military. Um, And then he says, and I'm going to use, you know, thousands and thousands of troops here in Washington to restore order. But it's actually not even clear which troops he's talking about, whether he's talking about the D.C. National Guard, who he commands and who he can use for law enforcement purposes without any special dispensation because D.C. is not a state. Is he talking about federal regulars because he has no legal authority to use federal regulars for law enforcement unless he actually uses the statute called the Insurrection Act? Is he talking about military police who are going to be using, you know, just a sort of installation security function? So, you know, I was leaving aside the rhetoric, which, you know, I I think we don't have to spend much time condemning. I think what was what struck me about the president's remarks was actually just how little affirmative action it contemplated and it required and it and it and it and it condoned um and how much it basically was like a threat to governors and to mayors and to other local and state officials that you know i i'm i'm mad as hell and i'm not going to take it anymore and you know whatever that may be as political theater it's it's not it's it's more ominous i think than it is meaningful as constitutional law all right Bobby, first of all, do you agree with that, that he didn't actually do very much? And secondly, what could he do without a request from a governor? Well, the critical thing, and this pertains to both your questions there, is his direct control over the D.C. National Guard. Now, of course, he can also assert direct control over the the various state National Guards if he wants to federalize them. That's that's a step he could take. But but the default is federal control over the D.C. Guard. There were already, as I understand it, 500 unarmed D.C. Guardsmen previously deployed in response to a request from the mayor. A remaining number, I think it's about 1,200 already today before the public announcement in the Rose Garden or wherever that took place uh, had happened because at the time he was giving his talk, there were, there were units rolling in. So I, I assume some of those will be armed. We're also told that uh, there's an MP unit, which I suspect is probably the 503rd Military Police Battalion at Fort Bragg. There's an MP unit at Fort Bragg that's standing by for deployment if needed, but it hasn't necessarily been deployed yet. I think all that is a it's a big deal. It's not necessarily that surprising insofar as as in the later parts of the evening. There has been violence. There was the arson and the, the, the shameful destruction of St. John's or the harm to St. John's. So it's not surprising that there might be some use of the National Guard uh, to, to prevent that. Um, what's more relevant, I think, is what Steve was talking about, which is, A, the, the general tone in the atmospherics and, and uh, the narrative elements of this, the, the assertion, I am your president of law and order, and that 
these acts are domestic terror and a crime against God and, and, and various references to designed to suggest that he's going to use what authorities he does have, even the ones he's not yet used in a way that may be pretty draconian. And when you match that with the use of tear gas to clear out peaceful protesters um, exercising their first amendment rights in Lafayette square, as, as Steve noted earlier, you begin to worry about what's coming next much more perhaps than we should worry about what has just happened. I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I basically agree with Steve's description that this is not yet quite as bad as it could be. Right. But I guess the question is, okay, so if he were going to use his powers to the fullest, but he can't count on requests or cooperation from governors in that regard. So the governor of Illinois today said, I don't accept the right of the federal government to send troops into Illinois, right? And, you know, states are sovereign entities and we're not in a state of civil war, right? There's no open rebellion among the states. So what is the president's authority to intervene militarily in a protest, even a violent protest in Minneapolis or Seattle? So he doesn't have to have the governor's invitation to do this. To First of all, to federalize the National Guard units in Minnesota or elsewhere, he can choose to do it if he wishes, whether the governor likes it or not. Um, the most draconian step, of course, would be a proclamation to activate the Insurrection Act. And making the right kind of proclamation would open the door towards the use of the military. It's not just there in federal service. It, you, could, you could use them to enforce the law and concerns and constraints about the Posse Comitatus Act would drop out of the picture. And I mean, so Steve, you and I talked about this the last time we had this, uh, this, this conversation, which was not in the context of protests, but in the context of COVID-19. What is the, uh, the threshold that he needs in order to do that? And what is the significance of the fact that he didn't do it today? Is it just that he was, you know, he's a, you know, a much louder barker than he is a fierce biter? Or is it that there's some uh, reason for the inhibition that resides in the law? I think, I mean, to, to take the, the second question first, I think it's the more the former than the latter. But the insurrection, I mean, Bobby, Bobby has it exactly right, that the Insurrection Act, which is, I think, actually a really unhelpful name for what really are a series of statutes that date in some way, shape or form all the way back to 1792, um, and which some really poorly advised Yale 2L wrote his student note about in 2003. And just to be clear, the poorly advised Yale 2L was named Steve Vladek, right? It, yeah, that, 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 guy, that guy sucks. Um, so yeah, the... the the, the Insurrection Act, it, it's really a couple of different authorities. And, and it's, I think it might be helpful to, to actually space out the three big ones. So, you know, a lot of folks gravitate toward what's today codified at 10 U.S.C. Section 251, which is the state request provision. But I think the key authorities are actually 252 and 253. And if you'll forgive me, I think it's worth reading them, because one of the things I hope comes through as folks hear this text is just how much discretion the statute actually commits to the president. Um, discretion that may actually be unreviewable. So here's 252. Quote, whenever the president considers that unlawful obstructions, combinations, or assemblages, or rebellion against the authority of the United States, make it impracticable to enforce the laws of the United States in any state by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, he may call into federal service such of the militia of any state and such of the armed forces as he considers necessary to enforce those laws or to suppress the rebellion. So 252 is really about federal authority and sort of the when state authorities are unable to fully vindicate federal authority. Um, and one really important example of this actually, maybe dovetails with 253, is using the Insurrection Act actually as President Eisenhower and President Kennedy did to enforce desegregation orders in parts of the, in parts of the you know, anti-desegregation South. So, you know, the Insurrection Act is not necessarily a bad thing in the abstract. The key is how it's used. Here's 253. The president, by using the militia or the armed forces or both, um, shall take such measures as he considers necessary to suppress in a state any insurrection, domestic violence, unlawful combination or conspiracy if it either hinders the execution of the laws of that state 
so much so that any part or class of its people is deprived of a right, privilege, or immunity secured by the Constitution or federal law, and the state is unable to do it, or opposes or obstructs the execution of the laws of the United States, or impedes the course of justice under those laws. And Ben, I think the key difference between these two provisions is that 252 is about subversion of federal authority. 253 is really about circumstances where- Subversion of state state authority. That's right. And so I actually think it is a perfectly plausible reading of 253, at least, that the president would be within his rights, whether we like it or not, to use the federal military in at least some of these localities where we've seen multiple nights of domestic disorder and where there are, I think, you know, genuine concerns about whether the local authorities are, adi- are, are in a position to adequately you know, respond to and quell the threat. And I'll just add that I think that he was adverting directly to that in his opening remarks tonight when he talked about being prepared to step in if the state and local governments, uh, as he, this is nearly the quote, if they failed to take necessary actions to defend their people. So I think he's thinking, or, or more to the point, his counsel is thinking of Section 253. And he seems to be saying, I'm going to give you a chance to do this under state law, but I'm going to backstop that with uh, at least the threat of federal action if you don't, right? That's, that, that's what that speech really says. And I read it two ways, right? I mean, the, the, the first way I read it is saying, you know, guys, clean up your houses or else I'm going to clean them up for you. But... I think another part of the story is that, you know, if we want to tie this back to Ben, our last conversation, you know, this is a president who I think is very, very happy to take credit when things go well and to blame everybody else when they don't. And one of the things about using the Insurrection Act, which, you know, we should say hasn't been used in 28 years, the the longest period in American history where it hasn't been used, is that at that point, Trump would own it. And he would own the response to these uprisings. He would own, you know, violence that occurs in the context of those confrontations. And I guess, you know, this may just be me, but I, I, I have a distinct sense that, that much more than any concern about the, the scope of 10 U.S.C. Section 253 for President Trump is a concern that, you know, once he uses the Insurrection Act and once he, you know, crosses that Rubicon, anything that happens from that point on is going to be on him, including things that he might not want responsibility for. Yeah, I think that's very shrewd. Bobby, so in the spirit of working backwards, in order to uh, go over to St. John's after after giving this speech, the president had to, you know, have a bunch of uh, peaceful protesters uh, near Lafayette Square uh, tear gassed, and apparently there were some rubber bullets fired too. And for those of you who think a rubber bullet is like a toy or something, they, they are not jokes uh, and they can cause very serious injury or even death. I have a you know, reasonable respect for the authority of police to clear an area, declare a curfew, but uh, using force against unarmed protesters to clear an area so the president can do a photo op does not strike me as obviously lawful. So what are the circumstances in which uh, there could be accountability for that use of force? Hmm. That's a, that's a complex one. I, I would maybe approach it this way. Uh, if the president, let, let's remove the photo op element of the fact pattern and just imagine a more kind of conventional situation where the president uh, needs to get into Blair House or something like that for, for ordinary business. Uh, and there's a protest that's in the way. I don't doubt that there are there's a wide range of circumstances in which it's appropriate to take reasonable and lawful steps to make sure the president can get to a location he needs to get to. That that's got to be the true that's got to be true. So then there's a question always about how is it done? And then we throw in with this fact pattern whether it should matter if it's something that feels very discretionary as opposed to something that's more at the core of the president's function. And frankly, I don't think we want to get into that line drawing business, trying to distinguish the circumstances in which the president's movement choices can be pushed through using lawful, reasonable means. And I think it's better if we just focus on whether it was appropriate to use the levels of force that were used in this particular instance. Now, I don't have the slightest clue as to who actually carried out the clearing of this particular crowd. I don't know what 
units may have been involved, what, what organizations were involved. So I can't really comment further on whether there might be any recourse in the event that say somebody who, you know, say somebody loses an eye or is otherwise injured from one of those rubber bullets, there are uh, all kinds of issues that could clearly arise that Steve's probably better equipped to answer than I am regarding prospects for suing the government in that case. But I, I would imagine it's very difficult. Yeah, so I, I, I was thinking less of suing the government than I was of, you know, like, all right, so this happened right around the curfew time. So I guess they could argue that people shouldn't be out at all at that point. And that would probably be, in addition to presidential movement, the basis for it. But I do think if you have a crowd of people and and nobody's doing anything violent and you lose a whole lot of tear gas and shoot some rubber bullets in, in there uh, into, into the crowd, that's a, you know, I, I guess you eventually get to the question of whether somebody who's injured is you know, is entitled to redress. But there's a sort of antecedent question of whether that's a, you know, an abridgment of people's right to protest. But I suppose you would, I suppose one would answer that by saying, well, wait a minute, it's after the curfew that was lawfully imposed, so they're not supposed to be out. So you'd kind of deal with that question that way. I just find the use of force in that situation just sort of shocking on its own terms. Absolutely. Look, I think this is yet another example of something that happens where it may or may not have been illegal what was done, but there's no question it was wrong to have done it. And and as often as it's a running theme on the National Security Law Podcast, where Steve and I will note something that might have been within a government official's power, that doesn't make it right that the power was used in the particular way it was. You know, that said, setting aside the curfew, if if the curfew was being violated, I think you're right, that's probably going to defeat the the free association type arguments. Setting aside injury, though, and assuming the curfew wasn't violated, there's an interesting question about whether uh, there's any kind of First Amendment violation. Again, I think that the president's movement choices probably makes that a pretty hard case. It'd be very different if there was, if you take the presidential movement out of it and you just have the president giving an order, he doesn't like the protesters being out there and he arranges for tear gas to be fired to break them up. Now I think you're talking about a, a reasonably straightforward argument for a freedom of association violation. Right. Right. And I, and to be clear, I do not know exactly what time this happened in relation to when the curfew went into effect. It happened before. It happened before. Yeah, it actually they, they the 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 they started clearing out Lafayette Square at about 635, which, um, you know, at least some folks on Twitter were suggesting might have been, you know, to have the visual of the clearing out happen at the same time as the president was speaking. I see. So then the 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 argument that this was based on the curfew would not be available to them. No, but can I say, I mean, I, I agree with everything Bobby said. I also think it's worth stressing, though, that the First Amendment questions in this context are actually really complex and really fact intensive. You know, it's rare that you have something like what happened for a time last night where the Cleveland police were telling people that no reporters would be allowed in, you know, <laughs> inside the right. downtown of the city. You know, that's not a hard First Amendment case. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, 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 the problem is that for better or for worse, and, you know, maybe one of the things we're learning is that it's for worse. You know, the modern Supreme Court's First Amendment jurisprudence is actually quite tolerant of government restrictions on protests. Things like free speech zones and enforcing curfews and things of, the, of that ilk tend to be sustained by the modern court. And so, you know, I think that there's, again, this is a context, I mean, part of why I'm I'm really glad that we're sitting down and record this is because I think this is a context where there are so many different overlapping, complicated legal topics, where as much as in any other area, what folks think the law is and what the law actually is are actually radically different. Where the government has a heck of a lot more authority than we might think, even to use the military, where the First Amendment actually might protect us a lot less than we think it ought to, um, even when it's a peaceful political protest. And, you know, I just I want to reiterate Bobby's point. I mean, there's, you know, there, there's such a temptation these days to think that as long as it's legal, it's fine. And I just, you know, I don't know how anyone can look at the images we've seen ever since, you know, the killing of George Floyd and think that the government's response, even those parts of it that have been perfectly by the book, have been in all circumstances appropriate. It, it raises an interesting question. I am sure there is a the type of zone Steve's referring to. That's a good point. And I wonder how I'm sure there's one that, that of course, applies to the uh, 
the plaza on Pennsylvania in front of the White House. I wonder how, how much further it extends outward such that there might be some pre-existing time, place, and manner restrictions that could come into play to justify at least some version of, rem- of preventing a crowd from forming in Lafayette Square Park. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, Lafayette Square Park is, of course, a site of many, many protests all the time, but they are not without regulation. And there are even some people, you know, who over many years have kind of camped there. And so it is a a zone that, A, people do all kinds of things in and are, is pretty expressive, and B, uh, has a lot of protests, but C, they do reserve the right to clear and you know, it is, and I don't know the exact parameters of of the rules of that, but the Secret Service keep that area under, you know, pretty tight uh, control. I also just want to say in support of, I guess, both of your points that, you know, there's another area where we see a lot of this happening, which has nothing to do with the president and has nothing to do with the military. But, you know, there are a just huge number of these cases around the country where journalists have been uh, attacked or, uh, or, you know, fired at or beaten or hit or arrested, or bystander non-protesters have been injured. So there's a, it's not just First Amendment expressive rights, it's also, you know, people who are who may be kind of there to look there to watch who may be uh expressing themselves who may not be who may just be walking by and you know the indiscriminate nature of the way a lot of the police power has been deployed really does raise questions you know that i have not seen before in this kind of number uh, even during i mean i'm old enough to remember the Rodney King riots as an adult. And, you know, that did not seem to me to have the same sustained level of interference with kind of day-to-day activities of innocent bystanders as these protests seem to. Maybe that's, I, I suspect the reason for that may be that fewer people were walking around with cameras, uh, you know, like not everybody, but we weren't bombarded every day on with you know multiple images of you know a kid who got hit with something or an old man who was shoved by a cop right and and i do think that raises a different set of issues that you know i'm not really sure how to think through so i mean i, I think then first of all i think there was some of that with the rodney king rise i think just were less we were less privy to it at the time but I, I actually think, you know, this strikes me a lot more like 1968 than it does like Rodney King because, you know, Rodney King was localized. I mean, it was it was L.A., it was Southern California. I mean, this is, you know, curfews in, what, 115 different U.S. cities? I mean, there were, you know, pretty significant protests even here in crunchy Austin, which I think, you know, is a sign of just how powerful this 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 concern nationwide. But also, and Ben, I mean, I just, I've got to say this. I mean... We have a president and we have a, you know, conservative media uh, sphere that has spent three and a half years, you know, villainizing the press. And that has, you know, repeatedly said, you know, reporters are the enemy of the people. The press is the enemy of the people. I don't find it particularly surprising that, you know, in these circumstances, there are law enforcement officers who, whether through intent, you know, malicious intent or just through carelessness, aren't bothering to, you know, be careful about who they're pointing their rubber bullets at and who they're using force against. And I think, you know, that's probably, you know, a much deeper, longer running problem in the country. And I think, you know, the sort of the rise of police violence certainly didn't begin with the election of Donald Trump as president. But I just think that like the, the, the discourse of the last three and a half years feels to me so inseparable from the you know, almost random violence that we're seeing on both sides. I mean, you know, this, I'm not saying like, you know, good people on both sides. But I'm saying like, you know, law enforcement officers using violence against peaceful protesters, protesters, you know, using the cover of all of this to engage in, you know, criminal activity. I mean, I just, I just think that there's, you know, this is so related and inextricably intertwined to me with, with so much of what's wrong with our politics. And I think that's part of why, at least for me, the last 
you know, 10 days have hit me so hard because, you know, it's not just about George Floyd and it's not just about lingering concerns about a lack of accountability for police lawlessness. That's unfortunately not a new story. It's about how, you know, the response has almost been cheered on and exacerbated by certain leaders. I mean, we have, you know, Senator Cotton saying, you know, deny quarter to the terrorists. We have Congressman Gates saying, I hope they shoot to kill. I mean, you know, these are elected, these are senior elected officials. And I just, that that's where this rhetoric is. I I can't even imagine what would have happened if a U.S. Senator in 1968 had said that. Well, I I, uh, remind you that, uh, uh, we had some pretty dinosaur U.S. senators in 1968, and I would not be surprised if one went back to uh, remember the phrase that Donald Trump uh, was quoting when the looting starts, the shooting starts, came from the sheriff of Miami in that period of time. And Fair so I, I, I don't think the rhetoric in that period was especially tame either toward uh, what they used to call hoodlums and Trump now calls thugs. No, but no, but Ben, but I, but I do think it was tamer as directed to the media. Uh, that's that's probably right. There was there was res- more respect for the, uh, of course, the the kind of godfather of modern media contempt, uh, which was uh, Spiro Agnew acting, you know, being acted through his speechwriter uh, Pat Buchanan. The phrase "the nattering nabobs of negativism" was still a few years later than, say, you know, a year or two after '68. But even that was very incipient compared to what they now do. So I largely agree with your point. I want to ask you both about that third provision, which is the one that everybody always refers to with respect to the Insurrection Act, and which involves a gubernatorial request. Why are people focused on that third provision? And uh, which seems to me to be the least flexible and the least likely actually to be used. I think people gravitate toward that for, for two reasons, Ben. One, it is the easiest from a political accountability standpoint um, to understand, right? That, you know, the the Constitution in Article 4 specifically contemplates that states can apply to the federal government for help when there's some kind of domestic violence. If the state is asking for help, then the, pre- then the, the president and the federal government look like they're being beneficent in providing it, right? That it sort of, it makes all of the sort of federalism and political considerations just sort of go away. But I think the problem is, is that there are folks who think, perhaps because they also misunderstand the Posse Comitatus Act, that that state request is therefore mandatory. And I, I just, you know, not only is it not mandatory, but the Insurrection Act wouldn't make sense if it was, because, you know, we've had examples throughout American history where the violence that the federal military was needed to quell was violence by state governments. Um, and where the resistance to state to federal authority was resistance by state school boards and state, you know, executive and state governors and state mayors. So I just, you know, I, I just think that there's a lot of this is this is why I think this is a tricky situation legally. Because you know, I don't think the Insurrection Act is all bad. I just think it's prone for abuse, especially when you have a president who seems, you know, unsaddled by what we might think of as conventional political checks. So for those listeners who didn't hear Stephen my earlier conversation about the relationship between the Insurrection Act and Posse Comitatus, Bobby, walk us through that relationship. How do these statutes interact and interdepend on one another? Well, I really want to defer to Steve on that because it's so in his wheelhouse. I'll just say that there's a widespread there's a difference between what the law actually is on the books. And for that matter, how it's enforced, but also in what people think it is as a matter of our legal culture, the the beliefs and assumptions people have, uh, which often are quite wrong and don't the law didn't do things they assume that it did. And the past you know past four years have given us endless examples. Uh, Posse comitatus is is a great example of that uh, it's I think to the extent people are aware of it or or the general idea of it, I think it's pretty common for people to assume that what it means is full stop. There, there's no federal even involvement in law enforcement, or at least no federal arrest uh, powers for the military. No federal, no federal military involvement in these sorts of things. And of course, it's it's not that at all. It's that in the absence of a statutory authority to get involved for the U.S. military to be involved in 
uh, law enforcement, then it shouldn't happen. And of course, there are all sorts of statutes that do pave the way for it. Uh, the Insurrection Act is is the the most sort of visible manifestation of that, um, and the one that matters the most here. So I think the, that's the relationship that matters. Uh, I, I guess I think too that probably it's not really the right place to focus. To on, on one hand, I I do worry. I think we should always, all of us who care about liberty in general, should always be alarmed, even if ultimately it's worthwhile to have the military involved in a particular law enforcement situation. Sometimes it's necessary, yes, but we should always be very cautious about it. Talk about, you know, you're holding a hot plate. You, you got to be cautious. I'm not sure that the, the biggest harms for the long term that are emerging from the federal response to the, to the current situation are going to turn out to be that Yes, in the end, the White House really, really got the military involved and really had them do lots of law enforcement in various ways. I mean, maybe that'll happen. Um, I, I'm more concerned about the sorts of things that Steve's been talking about, the the the, the narratives and the, the more symbolic aspects of all of this. And maybe that's naive of me. Maybe it's going to turn around tomorrow. We'll have a proclamation under the Insurrection Act and then I'll, truly all hell breaks loose. Um, but somehow I suspect that for, for the reasons you both mentioned earlier, that at the end of the day, President Trump does not want to own this incredibly unpredictable future of what will happen insofar as the protests continue and the military gets involved in law enforcement. I don't think he wants to have that on his plate. What he'd like to do is stay in position where he, send, he rings the bell for being, as he put it, I'm your president of law and order, and he talks tough. But at the end of the day, the responsibility when the sun rises the next morning, the responsibility doesn't actually attach to him. Yeah. And of course, if the protests die down, as protests tend to do, then, you know, a big show of, you know, flashbangs on Lafayette Square uh, and tear gas, and then the protests die down, becomes the great you know, presidential getting things under control, calling the governors right. out and making them do their jobs. And and that becomes a kind of victory of sorts. Well, it's just, it's exactly like what's been going on with the pandemic response. Yeah, except of course that 100,000 people aren't dying, right? And so you end up with a, like, it's actually very difficult to claim victory when, though he's trying, I agree with you, when a thousand people are dying a day. The posture he wants to be in is to say enough things so that there are the appropriate clips of video and audio of him saying, the governors really need to do X. I'm insisting, I'm encouraging. And so insofar as things do turn out well at any point on either of these problem sets, he can try to claim credit for that. Um, but when things aren't going well, he can always have someone to blame. Um, so I, I agree with everything Bobby just said. Um, I just, you know, I think there, there are just two last points I would really want to leave listeners with before, you know, we pivot to, I know the other thing we really want to talk about. And so the first is, you know, we haven't spent a lot of time talking about the Posse Comitatus Act. I mean, Bobby sort of, you know, Bobby explained, I think quite succinctly why it's actually not a real obstacle here that as long as the president does issue the predicate proclamation under the Insurrection Act that satisfies the Posse Comitatus Act, I think it's worth stepping back for a second and, you know, really trying to drive home what to me is a distinction that I think we lose in a lot of contemporary conversations, which is, you know, is this an authority we actually think the federal government should have in the right circumstances or is it an authority we think it should never have? And, you know, I think I, I mentioned briefly before, you know, the use of the Insurrection Act um, to use the army to desegregate schools in the South. I mean, hopefully that drives home that, you know, there are lots of examples in American history of the army you know, doing civilian law enforcement in ways that we can be quite proud of um, and in ways that I think have actually been really positive for the development of civil rights, for the development of, you know, democratic rule of law ideals. The tricky part, right, is that um, the army is, you know, and, and sorry, and related to that, it's not as if, you know, invoking the Insurrection Act is tantamount to imposing martial law, right? This is another misconception that's out there. Martial law is, at least according to the Supreme Court, you know, only that situation where there's no functioning civilian government, where the courts are, you know, not open and their processes or their processes obstructed. And we're not there. And so I just, you know, I, I think we ought not to be fearful in the abstract of 
the military serving as a backstop when it comes to enforcing federal law. What we ought to be wary of is the military being used as a weapon against our own people. And I think the real concern I have in this context is that, you know, I don't just I don't trust this administration to not use the military that way. You know, I'm not sure that, you know, military commanders would disobey orders to open fire on unarmed protesters. And so, you know, I think we we have to again be careful to separate the the authority in the abstract from how the authority would actually be applied here. And what scares me a heck of a lot more than the scope of the Insurrection Act in general is, you know, the extent to which this administration just seems willing to do things or at the very least say things that no administration, at least in my lifetime, would have felt comfortable saying. That that's that to me is the problem, not the the letter of the statute per se. All right. I want to turn before we wrap up from the area where the president is uh, threatening to use power that we all concede to be very broad and that, you know, he really does have to area, an area where the president is announcing the use of powers that he really doesn't have. And, and here I'm referring to his promise to designate Antifa as a terrorist organization. And I noticed in his announcement, he left out the word foreign from the tweet, which is, of course, uh, statutorily a very important word because the term in the statute is a designated foreign terrorist organization, there not being any authority to designate a domestic organization as a terrorist group. So for those listeners who don't know this, and please, Bobby or Steve, just correct me if you think anything I'm saying by way of background is incorrect. The power of the president, which is actually the power of the secretary of state to designate foreign terrorist organizations, is a creature of the material support statute. And the significance of the designation is really limited to the fact that once designated uh, once an or given organization is designated, it becomes a criminal offense to give material support to that organization. That authority is limited to foreign, as I recall the statute, and I haven't looked at it carefully in a while, as I recall, it's li- limited to foreign organizations or groups uh, that are in, that engage in terrorism in a fashion detrimental or, or inimical to the interests of the United States. Is that a correct summary, Bobby? Yeah. So the the only thing I would add is that there are immigration consequences as well. But the important point that every listener needs to grasp is that yes, we have a longstanding designation or proscription system for terrorist organizations. But as Ben said, it's only applicable and can only be applicable for foreign terrorist organizations. There is no domestic terrorist organization designation framework at all. So when the president says he's going to designate Antifa anything, uh, the most that that could mean is that he could decide to use words to describe them. And he could he could use the words designate and he could, he could borrow the language of FTOs, foreign terrorist organizations. But none of that has any direct legal significance of any kind. There's, there's no there there. So I, I, I said in a tweet yesterday that I had decided to designate Antifa an elephant and hmm. that and that that was as legally consequential as the president designating them a terrorist organization. That's not an exaggeration, right? Well, actually, so to be fair, I think what what you could see happen, notwithstanding all the things we just said about how there is no formal legal effect and certainly nothing remotely along the lines of bringing to bear the material support statute, let alone farcical notions that somehow a designation, even of a proper foreign terrorist organization, somehow brings the AUMF and military authority into this picture. Um, What we might imagine happening is a presidential order that perhaps does or does not use the the domestic terrorist organization designation language just for the rhetorical shock value of it, but that also includes directives that have real impact on the allocation of prosecutorial and investigative resources for going after whomever is going to be gone after uh, using the various uh, federal authorities that that do exist, the various federal criminal statutes that do exist. So hang on, let me me try to think through how that would work. You have a 
presidential proclamation or an executive order that says, I, Donald J. Trump, hereby designate Antifa as a terrorist organization, and I direct the attorney general to devote significant resources to any federal offense, to prosecuting any federal offenses by people associated with Antifa in the course of, you know, agitating or in, you know, crossing state lines in order to sort of foment these riots. Yeah. And so there's been actually some, some specific reference to the 1968 uh, Anti-Riot Act, which is 18 U.S. Code Section 2101, says that whoever travels in interstate or foreign commerce or even uses any facility of interstate or foreign commerce, uh, which, of course, would include the Internet, phones, et cetera, the highways, perhaps, uh, to incite a riot or to organize others to participate in a riot and so on is a federal offense. Now, interestingly, that statute actually was uh, declared unconstitutional in a case involving white supremacists. And I think the appeal is currently pending in the Fourth Circuit, if I'm not mistaken. But this case, United States versus Rundo, basically said, look, on its face, what exactly counts as a riot is not made sufficiently clear in the statute. But that's the Anti-Riot Act, though, though kind of the, the one part of federal criminal law that sort of jumps out at you as being most directly relevant to the type of scenario that the attorney general and the president have been referring to, it's hardly the only one. There are more, let's say, well-settled laws about uh, destroying federal buildings, for example, including laws that are found in the terrorism section of the U.S. Code uh, that would probably be applicable or at least relevant in some subset of the most serious cases they're concerned about. So it's it's not a situation where there, there are not relevant federal criminal laws. And it's not crazy that uh, in, in the abstract that the president might seek to see uh, the Justice Department uh, place more of an investigative and prosecutorial priority on, on pursuing them. So I don't know that I even have a problem with that. You know, I have a problem with the, the, the sort of theater of designation. Right. And I have a problem with pretending that we know much more than we do about this being Antifa and, a, a, as Bill Barr says, a sort of left, a group of left agitators. Whereas it does seem to me that there's non-trivial anecdotal uh, accounts that there are sort of a mixture of left and white supremacist groups fomenting things in different places at different times and sometimes maybe weirdly in conjunction with one another. But I, I think if the federal government wants to take the view that, look, we have a, a, a violence problem in, in the context of these otherwise peaceful protests and people are destroying a lot of property, hurting people and, you know, and, and, you know, doing a lot of damage in cities. Uh, and we want to prosecute that stuff. That doesn't give me any trouble at all, prov provided that you haven't already made up your mind about who you're prosecuting for it. Do you guys agree with that? Or should the federal response be uh, sort of more hands off than that? No, you're, you're totally right that that the thing that's such a shame about how this aspect of this problem is being handled, there, there are many shames involved here, but this particular one, it's just what you said. Um, if, if the statement was that any organized efforts to it, turn these peaceful protests to dishonor the memory of Mr. Floyd and others in turning things into violence, um, we're going to investigate it. And by the way, we're, we're very concerned about these right wing groups we've heard about. And, and we're also concerned about possible left wing groups. That sort of even-handed, politically neutral framing would make this a, a, a far less suspicious or problematic circumstance. What do you think, Steve? I, I mean, I, I just, I think uh, this, this sort of dovetails with, with, with the first part of our discussion. I think so much of this is just theater. And, you know, that, that this isn't actually about activating resources and this isn't re actually about, um, you know, bringing to bear the federal government's formidable counterterrorism authorities. It's just about perpetuating a narrative, um, a narrative that, you know, I, so as to say, I don't think is, is remotely complete as a depiction of what's going on in these cities. And, and if I can say this without getting into too much trouble, I, I mean, I think it's worth stressing. And, you know, here we are talking about all this stuff and not talking about, you know, the actual underlying 
objection animating the protests, at least at the beginning, which is a lack of meaningful accountability for law enforcement in this country. And, you know, there's nothing to be said about that from anyone on the leadership side. So I guess I just, you know, I, I worry that we are to some degree indulging the president's effort to, you know, distract us and move. I mean, Bobby chides me about this on the podcast all the time. You know, um, <laughs> his goal is to work you up and you're worked up. Um, and I just, you know, until and unless the government is actually taking coercive action based upon some, you know, paper designation of, of a non-entity like Antifa, as, uh, as, I, as I said, a strategos of the international fleet, I, I just, you know, I, I think we're missing, we're, we're getting distracted by the, you know, by the bright lights. And we're missing that what's really going on here is that the narrative is being changed away from, you know, the underlying, I think, real structural legal problems that are at least in part responsible for the culture of law enforcement impunity that got us into this mess in the first place. Well, we will be treating those problems on tomorrow's Lawfare podcast. So I I agree with you that it is very important not to get distracted from the underlying questions of police violence and communities affected by it and what accountability mechanisms should look like relative to what they do look like. I agree with you that that's a super important question, albeit it is not a it is not the question that the president addressed tonight, which is of course your point. Yeah, I mean, I, just, I, mean, I, I guess that's my frustration is that you know the I mean, first of all, we should say the pre, I mean, the only thing the president has said with regard to Antifa was in a tweet. And, you know, I, 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 for one, should take my own advice about not overreacting to the president's tweets. But I just, you know, I, I think if we stopped and said for a second, what has the president actually done insofar as taking, you know, concrete steps he has taken in response to the George Floyd killing and to the protests that erupted in response and to the lawlessness that erupted in response to that, right? What are the concrete steps he's taken? There was a tweet tonight from Kerry Kupek, who's, I think, the spokesperson for the Justice Department, that the actual authorities they're bringing to bear in Washington are law enforcement authorities, DOJ, ATF, DEA, the U.S. Marshal Service, not military. So I just, you know, I think it is incumbent upon us to do both of these things, to explain what the president could do if he actually wanted to, but also to make it clear that a lot of what he's doing is trying to lead us into conversations that his actions are not actually requiring us to have. It's a recurring bit on our show on the National Security Law Podcast that even as I encourage Steve not to, to rise to the bait of, of provocations from, from the president, then every now and then we flip it around and, and I take the position that even though it gives the president a uh, narrative changing win of sorts, as Steve just described, there are these claims that simply must be rebutted and they have to be shot down when they, when they are made. Because it's corrosive to have these claims, such as the claim during the, the early stages of the, the mess of a response to the pandemic in which the president was claiming all this authority over governors. It was a conversation changing gambit, but it was still necessary to, to sound the alarm that, of course, the president can't claim such authorities, doesn't have such authorities. And so to hear with some of the claims we're seeing from the president, even if it's it is indeed, as Steve says, uh, distracting us from the core underlying issues of, so So, what is the president's position on responding to the, the problem of, of the killing of un, unarmed black men again and again? And so they're, they're simultaneously true. And that's, that's just part of the nasty dilemma that we're in is that if we rise to the bait, then we're helping to change the narrative and distract. And yet, and yet somebody's got to rise to the debate, to the bait in order to shoot down some of these bogus claims. Yeah, I, at the risk of outflanking Steve on the uh, alarmed and pushing the panic button side, I will say that there is something that happened tonight that is more than, you know, a tweet and more than just a series of risible statements. And that is that a group of people who were peacefully protesting uh, got tear gassed at the apparent uh, at the supervision of the attorney general. And in order for the president to uh, take a photo op, and I do think that is, you know, something that, and all of that was in the context of making a speech threatening to call out the military. However, 
however insubstantially. And I do think there is a point at which in the context of a lot of violence happening, you know, I'm not a big words or actions guy, but there's some point at which words or actions, and these were a series of words and a series of actions that involved people inhaling gas they shouldn't have had to inhale and a lot of uh, violent activity by police that shouldn't have happened and and all in a kind of set of theatrical gestures by the president. And I do think that is, I don't want to say that's the point at which you push the panic button, but it is the point at which I, th I think it is a series of things that you have to take very seriously. So Steve, panic more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, Ben, that, that's that's very well said. I, I should. I, I'm not sure Karen wants to hear anyone tell me to panic more. Um, but, <laughs> I'm not but seriously I, telling you to panic more, but I am. I, I I am saying I wouldn't blame you for 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 being uh, a little hyperventilating tonight. But but I do think. I mean, but but just to say, I mean, I, the last thing I would just say is I, I think it's worth again, and I hate to beat a dead horse on this because I say this on our on our on the National Security Law podcast all the time. I haven't seen any you know, senior Republicans, Republican senators, even, you know, members of the House come out and say anything other than, you know, three cheers for the president, right? And, you know, to me, this is the, the real lesson about statutes like the Insurrection Act that we were learning time and again from this administration is that Congress, in its wisdom or not, has delegated an awful lot of authority to presidents in contexts in which part of the authority it delegates is the authority to decide if the delegation is even activated. And those delegations have assumed, you know, maybe not presidents who Congress liked, but at least presidents who Congress expected to be, you know, faithful to historical precedents and responsive to what we might think of as conventional political checks. And we're just seeing time and again that that's just not true anymore. And so, you know, if this is what my, my panic has not been the president and the attorney general clearing Lafayette Park of peaceful protesters for a photo op. My panic is tomorrow morning when there won't be a single Republican who has condemned him for it. And, you know, those are the circumstances in which these statutes become scary, not because on their face they authorize all this authority, but because we have a president who is receiving the message over and over and over and over and over again that no one in his party is going to stop him. That's very well put and very depressing, and it raises a separate set of issues that we are not going to treat tonight. We are going to leave it there. Uh, this has been a special edition of the National Security Law Podcast and the Lawfare Podcast. If you're listening to this on the Lawfare Podcast feed, you should go and subscribe to the National Security Law Podcast. And if you are listening to this on the National Security Law Podcast feed, and you've never listened to the Lawfare podcast, you should do that because, you know, they're kind of sister podcasts and, and they cover very different ground with some very similar themes. So Steve and Bobby, thank you very much for doing this with me. This was a lot of, wouldn't say fun, but it was uh, certainly the only way I would have wanted to spend this evening. Thanks, Ben. Likewise. Yeah. Hopefully we will not be needing to do this again anytime soon. I, I, I have 155 days till the election. <laughs>